Greetings. Welcome to Carmelite Conversations. I hope you're having a great day with the Lord. For 2020, our secular discount Carmelite community in Dayton, Ohio, has the theme of Mary, our mother, for all of our community presentations. This month's presentation in February is on Mary in Scripture. There are some eye-opening analogies and typologies presented here that will bolster to the faith of many. Additionally, many scriptural passages are referenced for your benefit. I hope you will enjoy this presentation given by Chris Cotter, a secular order discast Carmelite in the order of our Mother of Good Counsel in Dayton, Ohio, as he presents his reflection on Mary in Scripture. She's first mentioned explicitly in the Bible in the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus called the Christ. Her last reference is in explicit references in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, indicating that she was present at Pentecost. She was mentioned in the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke. She was at the presence with, present with Jesus on the cross and a few other times. She spoke six times. How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Ten verses in the Magnificat. Son, why have you done to this? Your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. And her last words, they have no wine. Do whatever he tells you. The Protestants are right. We overemphasize Mary. Those Marian dogmas are simply inventions of the Catholic Church. And Teresa Tricks and I will see you in the Baptist Church next week. <laughs> or, as my grandchildren would say, psych. So, um, so, in order to understand Mary in the Bible, we need to understand something called typology. Typology is very simply the study of types. A type is a person, place, thing, or event in the Old Testament that prefigures or foreshadows a greater person, place, thing, or event in the New Testament. Some examples would be um, King David, the king of Israel, foreshadows and points to Christ, the king of the new Israel. Melchizedek, the high priest of Genesis, who offered bread and wine. Uh, Jesus is the new high priest who offers himself body, blood, soul, and divinity for us. Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of a whale. Jesus spent three days in the earth before he rose from the dead, and so on. You get the picture. So types reveal more than the person of Christ. They also show us about the church, the apostles, the Eucharist, the places of Jesus' birth and death, and Jesus' mother. In order to understand the Marian dogmas, it helps to understand Marian types. There are many. I'm going to go through three of them. The first one is Mary as the new Eve. In order to understand that, we compare the first two chapters of Genesis with the first two chapters of John's Gospel. Uh, if you look at it, um, you see that creation was done in six days, and then it was perfected and sanctified when God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath. So if we look at John's Gospel, it's, construct, it's constructed kind of that way. It begins with, in the beginning, just as, just as uh, Genesis, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. That's day one. And then it goes on to say in 129, the next day, speaks about Jesus and John the Baptist, the next day, the call of the first disciples, the next day, the call of two more disciples. So we're at four days now. And then chapter two, the miracle Cana begins with on the third day. So we can see that there are now seven days. So something significant is gonna happen on that seventh day. To make this real simple, Jesus referred to his mother as what? Woman, woman. A derogatory statement? No, not really. It's interpreted that way, but it's a direct reference to Genesis chapter 2 when Eve was created and Adam named her woman. So we can see that Jesus is indicating here that Mary is the new Eve. So just as uh, Eve led Adam to sin, which was the first evil act, 
So, and it was through her and Adam that sin entered the world. Mary's yes, let it be done unto me according to your word. She was actually saying no to God, uh, yes to God. And um, so Mary then, as Eve was the mother of all the living, Mary then becomes the mother, the new Eve, the mother of all the people who were recreated in Christ. Um, so she's, she's the instrument that God uses to bring about a new creation. And there's an implied reference to the Immaculate Conception there, which I'll mention later. The second one is the Queen Mother. I once was leading a Bible class in my parish. We had two Protestants there. And I asked this question. If Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, who sits at the right hand of Jesus? The Protestants had no idea. Some people said the Holy Spirit. Some people got it right. The answer, of course, is Mary. She sits at the right hand of Jesus. How do we know that? Biblical typology tells us so. All we have to do is go back to 1 Kings. As David was dying, he prepared and, and planned that his son Solomon would take over and become the new king of Israel. So when Solomon assumes the throne of Israel, the first thing he does is found in 1 Kings chapter 219. It should be on your handout. Then Solomon sat down upon his throne, and a throne was provided for the king's mother, who sat at his right. Remember that after Solomon died, there was a split in the kingdom. So there were ten kingdoms in the north, Israel, two kingdoms in the south, two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And so the line of Jesus came through, the, through Judah, the, lines, the, tri, um, the, the tribes in the south. There were 21 kings in that time, 19 of them mentioned in the Bible to talk about the queen mother of the king. Solomon certainly couldn't put his queen at his right hand because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, more than a queen for a day. So, 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 um, so then Jesus, the true son of David, would seat his mother at his right hand when they both came into their glory in heaven. That's the idea. Then um, the third type, and the one that I find really interesting, is the Ark of the Covenant. So, um, as you may remember from Exodus, God gave Moses specific directions on how to consult the ark, how to construct the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it was made of acacia wood, which was considered to be incorruptible. Uh, a cubit is about one and a half feet long, about 18 inches long. And um, so the Ark was two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits high, and one and a half cubits wide. It was covered with pure gold, both on the inside and the outside. If you look at the picture, you can see the four rings, and there are acacia poles going through the four rings. The picture is not adequate, adic accurate because it's actually, the, the poles were also covered with pure gold. Um, so, and the, the ark was so holy that one could not touch it. So the Levites, the priestly class, were the ones who carried the ark into battle, into um, the promised land, and so forth. Uh, and God's presence, God's glory, dwelt in the tabernacle in the ark. So the point here is that the ark is so holy that one was not permitted to touch it because of the presence of God. And if one did, it died. And that happened uh, as David was processing the ark. Uh, the ark tipped over and a guy named Uzzah reached out his hand to study the ark. This is in 2 Samuel, first, Second Samuel. And uh, he died instantly when he touched it. So. What happened to the ark? Anybody know? Who found the ark? Indiana, Indiana Jones. <laughs> right. There's a true movie lover back there, Tim. <laughs> no, Indiana Jones didn't find the ark. <laughs> um, but you know, it's not even not even mentioned in the in the in the history there until you get to Second Maccabees, which was written 120 to 140 years before Christ. And there it says that Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave to prevent it from being carried off to Babylon at the time of the exile. Uh, so who can tell me, anybody, can you tell me what would, what would the Ark of the Covenant contain? Three things. Uh, it contains the Ten Commandments. Okay, so yes, wait, wait. The Ten Commandments, the stone tablets on which was written the Word of God. So Mary's womb contains the Word of God, Jesus, the living Word of God, the giver of the new law. What else? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. So Aaron's rod Aaron was the first high priest to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus, 
the true high priest, the new high priest of the new covenant, offers himself for the sins of all of us. And the third thing? Manna. Manna. Okay, so a jar of manna was in there. The manna was the bread that came down from heaven that nourished the Israelites until they entered the promised land. Jesus is the new manna that comes down from heaven. The, the bread of life comes down from heaven and nourishes us until we enter the promised land of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. So this is Mary. Okay. Um, that, that should be sufficient, but there's more. And you see this parallels here in Scripture here. Um, Exodus 40, 34, when Moses was con finished constructing the ark, it says, Then the cloud covered the meeting tent, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so Mary says, How is this going to come about? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. See the parallel. Then David, after defeating the Philistines, he's carrying the ark, and we see these parallels between 2 Samuel 6 and Luke chapter 1. So David shouts out for Baala of Judah. What's Mary do when she hears about Elizabeth? She proceeds in haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. After Uz is killed, David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Mary says, or Elizabeth said, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? David was leaping uh, before the Lord with abandon. John the Baptist, the baby, leapt in the womb of, of, of Elizabeth at the presence of Jesus. Uh, David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. And what does Elizabeth say? The baby leapt in my womb for joy. And then there was great singing with sisters, harps, shouts of joy to the sound of the horn, and Mary gives her magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And David, when Uzzah dies, he gets afraid, I guess, and he sends the ark off for three months to Abedadam. What happens there? The women become very fruitful. They conceive a lot of children. And the parallel in Luke is Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months, and she was needed there for the difficult pregnancy. So we can see that that um, that great, the great life, Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Excuse me, I have another paper. Okay. So where is the Ark now? Nobody knows? Well, no, we do know. Where is the Ark now? Seated at the right hand of Jesus. Okay. So um, you have to go to Revelation to see this. Um, right at the end of chapter 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of his covenant was seen within this temple. There followed flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. A great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was with child and about to give birth, crying out um, in anguish and labor. So we can see that the Ark of the Covenant, Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, is now in heaven. There's a lot more explanation that could go into this. So how do these affirm Catholic dogmas of the four Marian dogmas. Well, I'm just spend real quickly on this because I'm running out of time. But so Mary is the mother of God. What did Elizabeth say? How can it be that the mother of my Lord has come to me? The Jesus, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Mary ever virgin. The Ark of the Covenant was so holy that one was not permitted to touch it because of the presence of God. The, the Marian type, the new ark, her wound contains the literal presence of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, so holy that it would be inappropriate for someone to touch it or for her to conceive another child. The perpetual virginity of Mary. The Immaculate Conception, Eve, the, the first Eve, the woman of all, the, the woman of the mother of all creation, was conceded, con conceived perfectly. She, she, um, she was, came into the world without sin, okay, but she fell. The mother of the new creation, Mary, would come into the world without sin as well. She did not sin. She maintained her perfection for the rest of her life. And then finally, the uh, assumption, it's pretty easy, the Gebi Ra, seated at the right hand of Jesus, also points to her queenship. And then the Ark of the Covenant, made of acacia wood, which was incorruptible. She therefore would not 
die in the traditional sense, her body would not be corrupt. She was then assumed into heaven where she is now with her son, Jesus. That's it.
point being that those who find themselves in these difficult situations have an additional source that they can draw on, the, the only source. And those who want to participate in the ministry will have an additional means to find strength uh, and uh, uh, camaraderie even with those who are working in this ministry day in and day out. Now, there's another critical component, Michael, that you have a vision for, uh, that somebody's going to be responsible for making happen, uh, and that is to make uh, the Blessed Sacrament available 24 by 7 uh, in the form of adoration. Uh, we could go over a number of uh, admonitions from, um, from our church about uh, making uh, that uh, sort of prayer opportunity available. There's no need to. It's clear. Uh, the Holy Fathers, uh, the last three, of course, have been uh, adamant supporters of, of the availability of adoration. But talk to us a little bit about your vision for um, something in the Dayton area that, quite frankly, does not exist today. Not, not uh, uh, anywhere that I'm familiar with within 25 miles of us. Well, and I would say that you know, e even someone who's not familiar with our faith tradition or who might not recognize the real presence of the Eucharist, um, sees great value in the the spiritual calm that comes from just being still and accompanying um, each other and and as we would invite them to focus on our Lord um, in in this way and as we witness to them um, how much peace it brings us to to do that. Um, that that's a that's a, a foot in the door, is it not, uh, for them to uh, enter the, the the richness of contemplation in the real presence and and as you alluded to, the the, the power of that is 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 but a glimpse to someone who has not experienced that before, who might witness it for the first time, but certainly if we were to keep that up. Um, then uh, it, it, it will be noticed, and it will be noticed by the guests who are here themselves 24-7 uh, for the time that they need to be here. And, and also, I think quite powerfully, um, introduce a broader segment of our Catholic community to the ministry that we have here, and um, the importance of the invitation to them to participate in the, in the way that they would like to, um, uh, beginning with adoration and perhaps moving on to, to even more involvement with our ministries. Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, there are a couple of initiatives, Michael and I just briefly uh, chatted about on the break that we have in mind for getting people, especially in the conferences, and uh, again, for those who are not familiar with the structure, you can uh, understand by conferences, either parishes or uh, as we mentioned, a university, um, uh, there's a particular immigrant conference that, that uh, helps uh, that community. Uh, but uh, getting those conferences more uh, ingrained, uh, integrated into the prayer part of the spirituality of the society for this simple reason. Uh, those of us who've been in ministry of any kind for some number of years have come to recognize we are not the centerpiece of the work. We are not uh, the, uh, the ones who are making all of this happen. It is the Holy Spirit who's bringing about the change that we see, bringing about the provision um, that we rely on and that uh, the people that we serve rely on. And so we want to put the focus back on the center and where it needs to reside, and that's where uh, the Holy Spirit rests and where the Holy Spirit is both guiding, directing, and making possible everything that we do um, I would also say that even for those who may not have an immediate opportunity, though we hope ultimately many will, certainly we're talking to the Miami Valley now, the Dayton area, uh, we hope that many people will be interested in supporting 24 by 7. I know I can speak uh, very uh, deliberately to uh, this issue of a desire for many, many years on the part of many in this area to have availability for 24 by 7 adoration. Here I would say it's even more powerful. We're not just giving the opportunity for uh, adoration and, and the opportunity to come and spend time and worship our Lord, but we're doing so in the context of a ministry that even our Lord said uh, was arguably among the most important things that we could do, and that's serving the poor in our society. The poor we will always have with us. These treasures of the church will be with us until the Lord returns, and now we're being invited through this uh, um, 
initiative of 24 by 7 adoration uh, to serve that community and worship our Lord uh, all in the same time. So we're very excited about it. Uh, certainly those in the Dayton area will begin to hear more about it. I've already reached out to a number of people uh, to at least begin uh, to uh, uh, make that available. And we hope if there are people in other parts of the country that are hearing this message today, whether they're involved in the St. Vincent de Paul Society or not, that you might be gaining some interest in seeking out that society in your area and thinking too about how you uh, begin to engender a deeper appreciation for the spirituality of the society. And that, of course, Michael, stems all the way back to our uh, our patron, St. Vincent himself, St. Vincent de Paul. And so I want to talk a little bit about his spirituality. Now, we should just say briefly, in fact, if you don't mind, I'll let you do the just the brief uh, you know, elevator speech history, because many people associate the society's founding itself with St. Vincent. Of course, that's not the case. It was founded uh, quite a number of years later, 200 some odd years later, in fact. Uh, but I'll let you do that brief history before we go into St. Vincent's. Well, and isn't it interesting that here we are talking about the founding of the society nearly 200 years ago, and when it was founded, it was uh, with reference to a, a saint another 200 years before that. So yeah. uh, it is, you know, initially I think of um, how the, the stories of saints throughout the ages have inspired uh, generations to uh, continue those paths of holiness in a very particular way. So um, basically, um, Blessed Frederick Ozanam is, is credited as being the leader um, of a group of uh, young men who were college students uh, who, with the help of their mentor, Emmanuel Bailly, um, who, who grouped together to form what became the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And essentially what happened was um, in, their, in their studies, they were challenged by um, folks who said, well, you, you Catholics talk a good game about serving the poor, but what are you really doing to serve the poor? And so um, they took that to heart, and uh, they approached um, some, some particular Daughters of Charity, who again are part of the, the Vincentian family that traced their history back to St. Vincent himself, uh, to learn how to accompany the poor, learn how to, to accompany individuals in need. And so... Um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the society was formed as a, as a Catholic lay apostolate and um, has continued in that um, mode. Um, we, we also have uh, uh, governance rules in effect that essentially keep clergy from leadership roles uh, in order for us to maintain that, that lay character in, in how we operate. And Ozanam himself, being a lay person, he was actually a lawyer, schooling at the Sorbonne. Um, around 1833, if I have right. my dates correct, right. is, is their actual founding. Um, and you know, it, you, you reminded me of an important point that I wanted to uh, include in the ministries, because I don't think we touched on it specifically, and that's the home visit, which is really the centerpiece of the ministry, isn't it? It's Absolutely. not just sort of, hey, you, the poor, come to us and we'll provision. Talk, talk about that part of it, because that's so, so key to both St. Vincent's own spirituality, but to Ozanam's founding of the, uh, of the society. Well, and even our secular friends um, who, who we work with to this day recognize that apart from the religious character of our work, uh, they note that we're the only ones who do home visits. So um, we, we are not what we call a service counter type of human service. Um, we are a ministry. We're a two-by-two uh, ministry where we focus on going to people where they are, quite literally in their homes. And it's been that way since the beginning. That's what the Daughters of Charity uh, taught Frederick and his companions um, on, on how to be present to people, how to minister to them, how to be in authentic relationship with them. Um, and I think this is another aspect that um, gets skipped over quite a bit when we talk about poverty. Um, one, one piece of poverty that we all want is spiritual poverty. And uh, we practice that, we attain that um, in, in large measure through um, our intentional relationships um, that reach out to, again, create authentic uh, two-way real relationships, not dispensing our excesses to people that we perceive have material needs, but to enter into a true uh, relationship with them 
that has all the friction and tension of any of our relationships. And the idea that, um, that we are engaging people uh, from whom uh, there is objectively no ulterior motive for us to, to gain for ourselves other than our own salvation and theirs. Well, you bring up an important point. I'm actually going to skip past the virtues that St. Vincent, we may come back to them, but because you leapt to that, I want to, I want to capitalize on that and um, just point out that the, um, one of the central uh, themes, of course, is poverty. And for St. Vincent, there were four critical vows uh, that he asked his original uh, society, not society, but his um, uh, the, the missions and the uh, daughters of the um, um, daughters of charity. He asked them uh, to adopt these vows. One of them was, in fact, poverty. And, and he said, um, if I can find his own words here, uh, essentially he would not uh, want any one of these foundations uh, to be formed without themselves adopting an evangelization of the poor founded on poverty that we practice ourselves. And so uh, to the degree that we understand this idea of, uh, of spiritual poverty, uh, St. Vincent was key on his own um, members practicing that idea of poverty. And it may have been material poverty. In many ways, of course, it was for those who were ordained. But uh, even from a spiritual standpoint, he, it, it wasn't, as you said, you know, we, we give of our excess and, and that which we have left. We can think about the woman in the gospel, of course, that Christ uh, points out uh, giving the, the, the last of her uh, resources. But um, here, St. Vincent was key on the members themselves practicing what it is they were uh, seeking to serve, and that's uh, the poor and, and therefore practicing poverty. It's a key component of it. Well, I want to drop back to the virtues because uh, these are also key to understanding the spirituality. And again, as Michael and I have been discussing, it's the spirituality um, that we want to make sure that we, I, I wouldn't say uh, as much recapture, but invigorate uh, and make sure that everybody who's participating in the ministry and those who are served by the ministry are drawing the fruit of the spirituality that is inherent in the uh, St. Vincent de Paul Society. So the first of those virtues, Michael, is simplicity. You want to speak about simplicity a little bit in the way that St. Vincent uh, uh, communicated it? Well, you know, simplicity is something that um, um, we, we struggle with in, in so much of our society today. I, I, don't, I, I confess I don't know what it was like um, for him in, in his day, but, but I can say that... Um, you know, one of the things that helps us in our own spiritual growth is when we witness people who come to us at the shelters, for example, who, who really have nothing other than the clothes on their back and um, who have um, may, maybe some very complicated um, personal circumstances. But many of them that I've encountered have a certain um, simple, kind way where they have um, uh, embraced um, a love that is palpable. And um, that is something that is very attractive to many of the people who come uh, to work here, is that um, the, the, not everyone who comes here is in misery. Sometimes there's a quiet joy about them, and it is in their simplicity. It is in their letting go. It is in their not being attached to... Uh, too many worldly things, and um, you know, many of them um, frustrate us perhaps because we sense that they don't have a, a spirit of personal enterprise uh, or personal responsibility. Um, but simplicity is something that's in our face every day. Now, we we of course are are yearning for that virtue in uh, in a sea of complicated, uh, uh, unsimple uh, ways of the world and what we're surrounded with. But um, I'd have to say that uh, one of the things that, that uh, makes me excited about this ministry every day is that I can walk 100 feet from my office and encounter someone who has the simple joy about them, even given all the circumstances that surround their lives. Um, yeah. And that's a powerful witness. 
You know, one of the things that I was thinking about with regard to simplicity, and I, I read some of the material from St. Vincent's uh, the history on him and how he implemented and, and chose the particular virtues he wanted to focus on. But the modern term that comes to mind is subsidiarity. This idea that let's put the responsibility for getting something done at the lowest, most effective level within the organization. I see that in the way you run the organization, Michael. You know, all of us come in contact with the poor. I saw you counseling a young man the other day, actually a volunteer in one of the facilities that we were touring. So you yourself get directly involved in the ministry. It's not like you sit in a corner office and direct yeah. other active people's activities, but you, and, and it seems to be uh, a pervasive throughout the organization, people want to be involved in the ministry. They want, to, they want to touch the hands of the poor. They want to actually be at that lowest level. I don't mean lowest in, in, in a demeaning way, but at the level that comes in contact with the poor themselves. And right. I think that's also part of that. Well, and, and plus how we position ourselves um, in that we are, we are known in the community as the absolute backstop. We are the ones who affirm uh, every individual's humanity. Uh, when, when all their other networks fail, when their, when their family network fails, their employment fails, their shelter fails, their food security fails, um, you know, we, we are known to be the ones that anyone can come to. We don't have barriers. We don't have the complications of, uh, you know, the um, conditions that are placed on, um, on, on loving others. That's what we're here for. And, and again, we're, we're known throughout the community for that. Well, one other um, virtue I just want to touch on quickly, the, the uh, interim ones, we would all recognize humility, um, uh, meekness, of course, in this environment. That's a, a virtue we would rely on uh, every day. But also, interestingly, zeal. Zeal for the work. Say, say just a few words about that, if you would. Yeah, that, gosh, zeal is an interesting thing because, of course, um, uh, it's used a couple of ways, isn't it? It's it, well, on the one hand, it's it's uh, used to describe passion. On the other hand, it's used to describe zealots <laughs> that that, uh, that that chase down their own designs on on folks. But but I, you know, I I have to say that um, there's an energy around our ministry that really uh, is the fuel that really powers us to engage every day. And I see it in, in our volunteers and our employees, and, and I can only describe it as something that um, it, it is really the fire of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, there, there's no uh, objective reason why we should be uh, super excited about um, uh, being in the middle of misery, right? But uh, there, there is this very palpable energy that anyone feels when they come in to our work, um, uh, where they notice that that we we're just energized, and and my own explanation for it is the Holy Spirit. It has a way of drawing you in. I've witnessed uh, just in my short tenure here, uh, people that, and I don't mean to scare anybody away from the ministry, but I think it's representative of what you just said. People who willingly work fifty and sixty hours a week, you know, to support this ministry, um, and they don't do it as drudgery. You know, I asked one woman, in fact. Uh, uh, regarding the length of stay she had in one particular day, and she looked at me and said, well, uh, I said something about going home. She said, well, the people in the shelter don't get to go home. So, you know, it was, it was a passion, and it was palpable, and uh, it was clear that it came from the heart. So very, very uh, encouraging, and, and uh, it's really something to, to hold, to, to behold. And you do see the face of Christ in these people, and it, it makes you want to uh, be transformed and help transform their lives. You know, closing in uh, our Carmelite fashion, I just want to quote the, the words of St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, arguably the uh, most popular saint of the 20th century, certainly a well-known Carmelite. She said, There is no joy like that known by the truly poor in spirit. And if I can, Michael, I want to thank you very much for taking this time to be in conversation with us today. It's been a revelation, I'm sure, to many of our listeners. I do want to encourage and invite everybody who's listening, uh, if you know of the St. Vincent de Paul Society in your area, certainly if you're in the Dayton area, um, you know, take an opportunity to look a little deeper into us and see if there isn't an opportunity for you to get involved, to volunteer in some way. And what I want to promise you is that you'll capture the zeal that Michael talked about and you will find yourself transformed by participation in the ministry itself. 
and you will see the face of Christ in those you serve. And in that spirit, let us pray for the poor and the needy in our society. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, you came to give honor to the least, those forgotten, overlooked, and misjudged. You came to give first place to the last, those left behind, misunderstood, and undervalued. You came to give a warm welcome to the lost, those who are orphaned, abandoned, and destitute. Help us to be your ears to listen to their cries. Help us to be your voice speaking out of love and acceptance. Help us to be your feet walking beside those in need. Help us to be your hands to clothe, feed, and shelter them. You came for the least, the lost, and the last of this world. Lord, hear our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.